0: Good morning.
1: Good
0: morning. My name is Scott Alfitt and uh, the title of this um, session is Covenantal Apologetics. I think, I don't know how the organizers do this, but I think what they did is they just did a search on covenant, and then anything that <laughs> came up, they just put people in there. So um, the, the previous presentation, previous two, which were excellent, um, were a good bit different than what I'm going to be talking about because my focus is going to be more on apologetics, than specifically on covenant, though we'll talk about that just a bit, and some of that will be uh, repetitive of what you heard, uh, perhaps some of you, in the previous two sessions. Covenantal apologetics, um, what is it? Um, basically, covenantal apologetics is uh, a different label on the same approach to apologetics that has been called historically presuppositionalism. So, I'm not uh, advocating in my own uh, work uh, any significant or substantial differences between what I call covenantal apologetics and what has been called uh, presuppositionalism. And I'm thinking now specifically in my context of the presuppositional approach of Cornelius Van Til. Um, I just want to be clear here that I don't see any disagreements in what I'm saying and what Van Til uh, would himself uh, have said. Uh, but I'm advocating a, a label change, and whenever there's a label change, it's more than semantics. Um, it has to do with a change in emphases, oftentimes, and so that's what I'm trying to, uh, trying to accomplish in, in the change of, of label. Now, um, just a little sort of parenthetical comment here. Um, I've heard from people and, and read people who have commented on my book, Covenant Apologetics, and some are saying, uh, hip, hip, hooray, and some are saying, um, no. That's not going to work. Um, and let me just say, I don't really care. Um, if I don't, I don't care what you call it, um, but I, what, I'm, what I'm trying to do here, uh, more than just um, invent a new label, is to um, change the, um, the terms of debate uh, a good bit from where it has been uh, historically. And one, one way to accomplish that, there are other ways, but one way to accomplish that is by uh, change in semantics. So why, why change it at all? Um, well, partly because the notion of presupposition and presuppositionalism as a, a method of apologetics uh, has been uh, historically uh, extremely misunderstood um, to this day. Uh, you don't meet many who are critical of it, who actually uh, critique what presuppositionalism yes. is. So um, why, why covenantal? Here's, here's one example, uh, cur- current example, of um, a, uh, a misunderstanding. This is from Molly Worthen's uh, recent book called Apostles of Reason. She's talking here about uh, differences in, in, um, in theology and, and um, what's happening with notions of inerrancy. It's a fascinating book in many ways. But she says, on its face, the obsession with divine data contradicted neo-evangelical presuppositionalism, which implies that facts are not objective at all. They depend on an individual's assumptions. All right, now again, this is a, you know, a published work she's written. And um, for some reason, uh, scholars uh, get away with this um, kind of drivel. It's unfortunate. Um, if you're going to be a scholar, then, then, and if you're going to be critical of something or even espouse it, um, read it first. Uh, if she had done that, she would have noticed that presuppositionalism in any variety, and certainly in the Vantillian variety, um, does anything but um, imply that facts are not objective at all. It's the opposite in, in, uh, in our approach to apologetics. Um, facts do not depend on an individual's assumptions. I mean, that's absurd on the face of it. And you, you can read two pages in Van Til or any other who espouses this and recognize that this is not the case. But Worthen is not the first to do this. Others have tried to make of presuppositionalism a kind of postmodern relativism. So that people say, well, what presuppositionalism advocates is that we all have our presuppositions. And that's how you see the world. Uh, you don't need a method to say that. That's, that's obvious on the face of it. We all have our presuppositions and that's how you see the world. But there's much more working uh, in this approach um, than uh, some kind of relativistic notion like that. Uh, just for clarity's sake, um, Van Til's approach, my approach, is that because all facts are created facts, they have their objectivity in God's creative and providential work. So it is uh, owing to God's interpretation of those facts, not to every and each human being's interpretation of those facts, which would be relativism, but rather to God's interpretation of those facts, which makes those facts objective. And the Christian position holds that facts are objective in that way. So but this just to say this is not unique. Unfortunately, Um, there's a good bit of that kind of discussion out there. Now, the other reason uh, to change uh, terminology, uh, misunderstanding, um, but but also it's it's a bit diffuse as as a word. Presupposition, presuppositionalism. What does it mean? Um, I remember talking to an apologist years ago, decades ago now, um, and we were talking about apologetic methodology, and he said, "Are you presuppositional?" And I said, "Yes." And he said, "Well, are you Schaefferian or Clarkian or Carnelian or vantillian What are you?" And that sort of made me start to think that there might be some nuances there that need to be um, clarified in some uh, particular way. So um, there are varieties of this kind of thing floating around. The notion of presupposition is not itself that clear. Van Till himself didn't take the moniker on, but it was given to him in a critique of his own position. Uh, one man called him a presuppositionalist, and he just it just sort of stuck and so he, he went with it, but it wasn't a term that he advocated himself. Uh, and then you combine that with our kind of uh, post-Cunean predicament in which we find ourselves, which, which tends to make this kind of view sound plausible, that uh, presuppositions are just what we have, and that's just the way we see the world, and that's all we can say about it. Uh, that is not uh, at all what uh, Van Til was trying to advocate. It's not what I advocate in teaching uh, apologetics at Westminster Seminary. So that's, that's an apologetic for changing the moniker of apologetics from presuppositional to a covenantal. Now, one thing I thought about doing that I thought you would be even more bored um, than you are, I thought about just giving a list of Van Til's um, uh, quote, Van Til quotations where he uses over and over and over again the terminology of covenant, it's, it's on almost every uh, page of what he writes, but that's just to say I think he would have been uh, happy enough with uh, this kind of label. What we're doing then, what I'm doing, is moving the discussion, I hope, from a kind of ambiguous, amorphous, philosophical idea, presupposition, moving it away from that uh, to uh, the notion of covenant which has its uh, roots uh, foundationally in Scripture and uh, specifically in the history of Reformed thought. So what, what do we mean, what do I mean by a covenant? Uh, well, you, you heard something about this uh, in the previous session, two sessions ago, but let's just look, uh, for example, at the way in which the Westminster Confession of Faith sets it out in chapter 7, section 1. Notice what the confession says here. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they can never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. All right, so what does that mean? It means it means a lot of things. Um, as was said a couple of sessions ago, the distance between God and the creature is not a spatial distance. It's metaphorically speaking there because God is repletively present. There is no distance in that way. What the confession is highlighting is what has been highlighted in the history of theology, and that is that there's an ontological difference, a fundamental qualitative difference. Difference between God and creation. Uh, And it is such a difference, such a distance, that the only way in which you and I can have any fruition of God as our blessedness, as our reward, is if God initiates that by voluntary condescension. God then condescending. Now, condescension itself is. A spatial metaphor, isn't it? It means God coming down. But what does it mean that God comes down? Does he begin to occupy a place that he didn't otherwise occupy? That's not what it means because he occupies every place there is to occupy. God is omnipresent. So what is condescension? Well, condescension fundamentally is God taking on characteristics, attributes, properties that he didn't have to take on, but he freely determined he would in order then to interact with his creation. God condescends. And that condescension then, as the confession defines it here, is what we mean by covenant. Notice it is initiated by God. Otherwise, we wouldn't know God. And it's initiated by God by virtue of his free decision to condescend. Uh, as Calvin puts it, uh, God's divine stoop, God stoops down. And Calvin goes on to say, he then listens to us. In effect, he talks baby talk to human beings because otherwise, if he didn't get down on our level, like we get down on the level of little children sometimes, if God didn't do that, we would have no way of understanding. So he condescends then to us in order to speak to us. So this is the way we think about it in a reformed context. We we start then with God being totally other. And I'm familiar with those who don't like that idea. I don't like it when Barth says it because it's not orthodox. But when we say it in a reformed context, what we mean by that is that God is infinite, eternal, and has those attributes that you and I could not in any way share. And as totally other than, he condescends to speak to us, to communicate to us. So there's nothing embedded in God's total otherness that discounts or disallows God's communication with his creation. So there is an ontological difference between God and us. The only way that we can know God is if God initiates that knowledge by condescending. Do you understand that? That's the only way we can know God. He initiates that by his condescension. And his condescension includes his revealing himself to us. So when we think about ontological difference, we can refer again here to the confession chapter 2 now. A God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible. All right, now, those things, by and large, we have no share in. We don't know what it's like to be infinite. We don't know what it's like to be immutable, to be immense, eternal, incomprehensible. Um, Those are so-called incommunicable attributes of God that are entailed by his aseity, by the fact that God himself is independent. And then he stoops down in order to relate himself to us. Now in that relationship, I think it's important for us to see in that relationship then every person is in some kind of relationship to God All right, now it is not uh, always a happy relationship. But as uh, we have uh, found in the uh, other presentations, again, uh, helpfully uh, helping us to understand this, uh, every person is either in Adam or in Christ. All right, Uh, either under wrath or under grace. We have two covenant heads in the world. Adam and Christ and every person is in one or the other under wrath or under grace but don't miss the point the point is that means every person is in some kind of relationship to God being under God's wrath is relational it is not that God is absent at that point God is there as image of God God is always there and present uh, to us Uh, But if we remain in Adam, then uh, God's fairness is one of wrath and anger and not grace and redemption in Christ. So when we think about this, it's important for us to see it in the context of what Paul says in Romans 1. All right, so we can look at that uh, for just a second. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. "...against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks." All right Now, you know what Paul's doing here. He's already said in Romans 117, he wants to talk about the righteousness revealed. And uh, that was one of the passages that stimulated uh, Martin Luther, uh, got him uh, to uh, begin to understand uh, the righteousness that comes uh, through faith on the basis of Christ's work. And Paul talks about that 117 righteousness revealed. But before he does that, he needs to get straight. The wrath revealed. And what's Paul doing? He's telling us what he does in Romans 3 when he says, I've already said, both you and Greek, all of us are under sin. He's putting everyone then in the same sinful boat. And he's thinking now about the condition of man prior to redemption, prior to that righteousness that is needed, that can only come in the righteousness of Christ. So he wants to, to discuss then the wrath of God as that is revealed from heaven, against the sinfulness in which all of us participate and it's revealed against all of us against those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now Paul recognizes, you can see it in the text here, Um, as, as Peter says, some things in Paul are hard to understand and we all say amen to that and then occasionally you can see what Paul's thinking. He had not been to this church yet so he anticipates as he's writing this, Uh, That there are some concepts, some ideas that he's going to have to explain, even as he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as he writes his inerrant word. See, I'm fitting with the theme of the, (laughs) which it is, in spite of arguments to the contrary. So um, Paul is saying here, those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, Paul recognizes two things he has to explain, suppression and truth. He anticipates that his readers will be thinking, Paul, what do you mean by suppression and what do you mean by truth? So he handles the latter one first and begins to talk about what the truth is because that which is known about God, all right, that's the first thing he's talking about. The truth is that which is known about God and that which is known about God is evident. It is manifest within them, within who? Within all of us. Remember, this is a a universal indictment of sin. That which is known about God is evident within us, within them. Why is it evident? For God made it manifest, made it evident to them. So as uh, all of you, uh, no doubt in this room, uh, know, Paul is talking here about God's natural revelation. God revealing himself in and through creation. And when God reveals, his revelation gets through. That's Paul's point here that which is known about God is evident because God made it evident, not because we did it. See, Paul's point here is not natural theology. We are not the actor in this passage. God is the actor, we are the recipients. That's the point Paul's making. He's not talking about inference here because then it all depends on whether or not we've inferred properly. But what he's saying is when God reveals, his revelation gets through. God made it evident to them. All right, Paul, what do you mean, that which is known about God? Still a little bit vague. Here's what I mean. Since the creation of the world, Paul says, his invisible attributes. That's what I mean, that which is known about God. His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. All right, so now Paul is telling us That which is known about God includes his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature. That latter uh, two words, those latter two words, divine nature, translating theotes, uh, which uh, has uh, the idea of God's godness, his deity, his divinity, God's uh, power, what he does. His nature, who he is, is revealed in creation. The invisible becomes visible by virtue of God's revelation in all of creation and it gets through to every person such that we are collectively an apologetus. That is, we are without, what? Without an apologetic, you see it there. Without a defense, an apologetus. that's Paul's point so that no one will ever stand before God and say, I didn't know you. No one has an excuse before God, not because we have thought properly. Paul's point here is because God has revealed universally and properly, such that those made in his image know him. All right, that's relational, isn't it? We have fruition of God because he condescends. He condescends to reveal when he reveals In this case, through creation, Paul's telling us, that revelation comes through and gets through such that that there is no situation in which someone will stand before God and say, I didn't know. In spite of what Bertrand uh, Russell uh, said, he would say to God, remember, Russell was asked, what will you say to God? If you're wrong, there is a God. What are you gonna say when you die? Russell said, I will say to him, not enough evidence. Well, Russell has died. And that's not what he said. He knew God and was responsible for the knowledge that God gave to him. Why did he say not enough evidence? Why did he say, I will say that? Because, next point, of what Paul says we, in our sins, do with the truth. We suppress it in unrighteousness. Verse 21, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. He's speaking there specifically to the philosophers, claiming to be what? Those who love Philo, Sophia, love wisdom, claiming to be wise, they became fools and what? exchanged the glory of the immortal God. That's Paul's phrase for the truth, by the way. The truth they have is the, the glory of the immortal God, which they exchanged, they, meaning we, in our sins, in Adam, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for what? For idols, for images. Or verse 25, they exchange the truth about God for a lie. All right, so so here's, here's the problem of sin that Paul's laying out. What sin does to us is, is it causes us to be utterly self-deceived in Adam. Do you understand that? To, to be utterly self-deceived means that we convince ourselves to believe something that we know is not the case. And we will fight for that belief in spite of our better knowledge. That's what sin does to it. Self-deception. Right? And this is why Calvin says you've got to see the world and yourself and other people First of all, through the spectacles of scripture, not first of all, through what we say about ourselves, what I think about myself, what someone else articulates about himself or herself, because in our sins, we are self-deceived people. We exchange the truth God gives for a lie. We hold down that revelation. And so we don't want to say what the world is and who God is, even though we know that. There's more that could be said about that. Um, Paul goes on to talk about it uh, beginning in Romans one thirty two, where he talks about the righteous requirements of God, the dichioma of God. Those things are known as well and, and known to such an extent that people know, we know in Adam that transgressing God's law is a capital offense worthy of death. We know that as well. And he, he expounds that more in, in Romans two, but he says, what do we do in our suppression? We not only do those things, he says, Romans one but we get other people around us. Misery loves company. We form groups and committees. We all do these sins together, knowing that it's a transgression of the law of God. All right. That's covenantal language. That's a relationship with God. Do you see that? So, so we, we have to recognize the fact we talk about this a, a, a good bit and we ought to as Christians, we have a relationship with God in Christ. That will go on to eternity. And it's a happy relationship because of what Christ has done. Not because of ourselves. But that doesn't mean that those outside of Christ have no relationship. Hell is an eternal relationship with God under his wrath. It's covenantal by virtue of being image of God. Think of a mirror image. The only way you can have an image in a mirror is to have the original present. God is present there. And we are meant to image him. We pervert that image, but God doesn't disappear when we do. We're held accountable because of it. All right, a couple more points and then I'll I'll be finished. The other thing that's important to recognize in the midst of our discussion is the notion of principia. Uh, foundational, uh, fundamental uh, principles, but more than just, prin- these are not just propositions. Principia are foundations on which we stand. All right, now here's a quote from Richard Muller in his post-Reformation reform dogmatics with respect to theological prolegomena and the way we're to think about Principia <clears throat> in light of that. He says, these early reformed statements, you can look at those um, on your own time, concerning theological presuppositions focused virtually without exception on the problem of the knowledge of God given the fact not only of human finitude, but also of human sin. The critique leveled by the Reformation at medieval theological presuppositions added a soteriological dimension to the epistemological problem. Whereas the medieval doctors had assumed that the fall affected primarily the will and its affections and not the reason, all right, some of you may be thinking that way, you're in line with medieval teaching, the the Reformers assumed also the fallenness of the rational faculty, A generalized or pagan natural theology, according to the Reformers, was not merely limited to non-saving knowledge of God, it was also found in idolatry. Now notice what Muller says here. This view of the problem of knowledge is a single most important contribution of the early Reformed writers to the theological prolegomena of Orthodox Protestantism. Indeed, it is the doctrinal issue that most forcibly presses the Protestant scholastic's Toward the modification of the medieval models for theological prolegomena. You see what he's saying. If you're here uh, this morning and you're Protestant, this is your heritage. Maybe you reject it, maybe you don't like it. Uh, But that's the way it was after the Reformation. That what the Reformers began to see in uh, concert with their affirmation of sola scriptura is that we have to recognize that the problem of knowledge itself is embedded in our th- theological prolegomena. All right, so this um, statement that I've heard oftentimes uh, from people, uh, well, they'll say to me, you know, we, we agree with you um, ontologically, everything comes from God, but for you, we're, we're on the same page. Uh, epistemologically, sorry, it doesn't work that way. The reformers saw that it works that way. That, that the problem of knowledge is embedded in our understanding of revelation, that we have no knowledge unless God reveals, that we have no knowledge unless God condescends. So that everything that we know depends on God's revelatory activity, revealing creation to and through us. And the reformers saw that. And Muller says, you know, Muller, I'm sure, Muller's not inerrant. Only scripture's inerrant. But when it comes to 17th century, he's close. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's read everything, more than one. Um, so whether you agree with him or not, in the 17th century, this is the way they were arguing the view of the problem of knowledge, the single most important contribution of the early Reformed writers the theological prolegomena. Why? Because they recognized, again, as the church had previously but had lost it, they recognized the necessity of God's revealing activity in creation and in his word in order to know anything. All right, so when we talk about Principia, then there are two, the Principium Ascendi. There won't be much debate here. Um, I won't uh, read this because I don't think, well, there may be some debate here. Um, maybe you don't like the notion of God's aseity. Uh, maybe you're an open theist. If that's the case, uh, we can talk. And um, that's a sanctification issue. And then, <laughs> principium cognoscendi the, um, the principle of knowledge. The, it's a principial problem, a principial affirmation. All right, this is why when we're discussing things like the inerrancy of scripture so I read something, uh, someone was saying, you know, um, somebody thinks inerrancy is important. Other people think justification by faith is important. That's not the issue. The issue is where do you stand in order to articulate anything? And the Reformed Confessions, every one of them saw this so that the first two chapters of, of all Reformed Confessions that's spoken this way begin with what? Scripture and then God. And I've heard people say, you know, they're not Christ-centered. They didn't, didn't begin with Christ. No, they're beginning with what you know and how, and then who you know, and then you begin to detail uh, what that means. So the principium ascendi and cognoscendi are embedded in the roots of Reformed thinking. So in uh, in the Confession of Faith, faith chapter one, uh, section four, this is a principial statement. The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received. Why? Because it is the word of God. You've got two options in this world. You accept the Bible because somebody out there has convinced you and they've got some authorities and they've mounted up and piled up the evidence and you think that's good evidence, so I'm going for it. Until there's not such good evidence or that's refuted. But I'm going for it. That's one option. Or you accept the Bible principially. As a principium, you take it as the Word of God, and you come to it that way. So, see this discussion that I was listening to, part of which I was listening to this morning about, um, you know, I, the Bible doesn't do this. The Bible doesn't behave that way. We're not talking about what the, how the Bible behaves. We're talking about, first of all, what it is, and we come to it with that conviction, and then we can begin to see what's going on internally. But if it's if it's up to me or someone else to establish the authority of the Bible, guess what? Who's the authority? I am. And, and the Westminster Confession saw it. You know when this was written in the 17th century and there was a great battle going on and they saw it and everyone since has seen it who's thought about these issues, you've got two options. The church, the Romanist church was saying, you accept the Bible, you people in the pews out there, you uneducated, you accept the Bible because we've said it is the Bible. Now who's the authority? The church. Are you with me? You got to see that. Because then the church can say, you know what? We're, we're going to put some new books in. And guess what they did? And then they can say, um, we're going to take some out. And what do the people in the pews do? Fides implicitas. Whatever the church says, we believe. You say, we believe. That's one option. The other option, the principial option that the reformers saw is, no, If this is foundational, it's foundational. And if it's foundational, it means you don't go behind it. It means you stand there in order to articulate and say anything else. But that doesn't mean... I'll finish with this. That doesn't mean... There's nothing else you can say. So in section five, they say, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture, the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof. Notice I have it there. Are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God, all right? So it doesn't mean you can't say anything. It doesn't mean there are no arguments. It means you take them to the scripture, right? You do that in apologetics, just like you do it in evangelism. None of you in this room is afraid to do it in evangelism. You come to people and you say, you've got to trust Christ. Well, how do I know that? What it says in the Bible? I don't believe the Bible, but you've got to trust Christ. And then we get to apologetics, and they say, no, you can't use the Bible. Why? They don't believe the Bible. Of course they don't. That's why they're unbelievers. That's why you're having a debate. See? So if you're not going to take it out in evangelism, why are you going to take it out in apologetics? Because we've been duped into thinking apologetics is done on the basis, not of revelation, but on on the basis of neutral reason. That is a medieval construct. Right out of Roman Catholicism. It undermines the basic authority of Scripture. Now, then... They go on to say, yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. The spirit works by and with the word. That is the truth given, whether given in evangelism in apologetics or in preaching. The spirit of God takes the truth of God in his own sovereign way, connects that with the truth of God that people already have so that there is a connection point. And the result is either an aroma of life or a stench of death, but there is a result. It's one or the other. So the people either remain in Adam or are then found to be in Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. All of this you see is covenantal. It all works because God has condescended to reveal and in that revelation has established and will maintain into eternity a relationship with every person on the face of the earth because we are made in the image of God. And that's why it has significant implications for our apologetic approach. All right, I'm a little bit over time, but I'll stop there and see if you might have a question or two. Yes.
1: Uh, given that the problem is authority and the spirit works on us, why would we? Why couldn't we just go
0: through evangelism, and call for repentance, and change the heart? Of the yeah, and when Van Til asked that question, he says, "I'm not going to make a hard and fast distinction between evangelism and apologetics. Sometimes it's a matter of terminology and, and content. Um, what what you're trying to do in all these situations is help people to see their desperate need for Christ. Sometimes that comes." in the context of philosophical or uh, some kinds of well-articulated arguments, and so you want to respond to those arguments, but you respond to those arguments based on what you understand Scripture to be and to be sane. So in, in that sense, I think you do make arguments, and you, you can work with those if you want to, but with the goal of presenting Christ. I'll tell you a quick story. Some of you well, won't care much about this, but to me, it's, it's a fascinating story. A friend, a man came up to me when I was uh, speaking years and years ago, and he said, I want to tell you a story. I was a student at Westminster Seminary, and Van Til was invited to speak to the philosophy faculty at Johns Hopkins University here, and um, he said and he asked me to drive him down, so I had the privilege of driving him down. We got <coughs> stuck in traffic, which is why I took the train this morning. We got stuck, he said we got stuck in traffic, and when we got there, we had 30 minutes left of what was meant to be a two-hour presentation. And he said Van Til took his folder, his paper that he was going to present to the philosophy faculty, he set it aside, he took out his Bible, and he preached from the book of John. All right? You've got 30 minutes with a philosophy faculty. What are you going to tell them? Van Til could have buried him if he wanted to, intellectually, but he didn't do, do that. He took out his Bible because he knew what he wanted to finish with was they needed to repent. See? That's the heart of a man who understands apologetics, inextricably linked to the work of Christ. I mean I've said this before. It, it, it's controversial. But if, if all I was teaching. Our students at Westminster. Was how to support generic theism. I would quit my job. And try to make some money somewhere. I means Generic theists go to hell. Only Christian theists. Are saved by the grace of God. Yeah.
1: Agreed. Inextricably linked, but inextricably linked doesn't mean the same path. So, uh, why not provide uh, some arguments that might uh, arguments that might eliminate the intellectual objections? Right. Because if you go straight for the gospel, praise the Lord. The gospel is what all men need. But if you go straight for the gospel, that might create the impression that they're that uh, there are no intellectual uh, grounds for the truth of Christianity, not just generic theism, but Christian theism.
0: You're right. Yeah, and, and I would say exactly, why not go for arguments? Use them, go for them. But don't give up your ground when you do it. Don't assume that you're arguing on the same turf of the person to whom you speak or you've lost before you can But absolutely give the arguments. I mean, Van Til's argument is the impossibility of the contrary. Christianity is true. Everything opposing it is false. So you know going going into the discussion that whatever someone believes, even if you haven't studied it, it's wrong if it's not Christian. And you try to to pursue that. You probe that. And you give the argument. And you try to deconstruct. All right? Let's take that down. Take the scaffolding down. Then construct it over here. If this is what you want, the only way you're going to get it is in Christianity. If this is what you think you need, Christianity says you need this. That's why when Van Til was arguing with the philosophers, he said things like, God is the only concrete universal. And people just got mad at him and said, what are you, Hegelian? They said, no, but, but Hegelians use this term. They want a universal. It's not abstract like Kant's. They want a concrete universal embedded in history, but transcending history, the telos of all of history. And Van Til said, that's what you want. God is the only one who's going to provide that. So he used the language... As he deconstructed idealism and reconstructed, according to Christian theism, you're right. Use the arguments. Yeah. You allude
1: to that in Roman one. It's, it's invalid for a, a natural theology for a natural sort of apologetic for in the sense that man can, with his reason, arrive at God apart from God's intervention. Are you arguing that natural theology is an invalid concept, or is it a valid concept only within the context of someone under Christ? The
0: latter. The latter. Yeah. Um, That's why Muller makes the point that natural theology in the context of a pagan is inevitably idolatry. I mean, there were, there were many theists at, at the Areopagus, they were, many of them were theists that Paul was addressing and he didn't say, good for you, you've got, you've got the God thing right now, let's talk about Jesus. He said, you do not have God right. You've got idols, you've got images here. So, so there, is, there is a legitimate natural theology within the context of Christian truth. So the Reformed scholastics will make a distinction between a Theologia vera and a Theologia falsa. Theologia falsa is what inevitably is produced by those outside of Christ. Theologia vera, is what is produced by those who are in Christ.
1: So there could be somewhat under... So let's take the period before Christ. Would there be someone who God has baptized in his heart? Or is under Christ effectually? Can they respond to a natural theology?
0: If they're regenerate. I, does that apply in our time today or... Well, you're not regenerate Apart from Christ in our time today There's only one name under heaven You have another one Yeah, I
1: mean uh, uh, I like Muller And I'm sure I know he knows more than I do okay. But uh, I think he's wrong about uh, Certainly about Thomas uh, I think, I think uh, Thomas in the end would also say That the issue is That that the, the epistemological principle is also soteriological at its root but even more I think Thomas uh, understands that uh, and he explicitly says this, that the whole of human nature is fallen it's wounded he says and uh, and not just the will is wounded, but the intellect is wounded such that the wound of the intellect is ignorance he says and so the reasons, uh, the, yes the to point about uh, the good of the intellect is truth, he says, but because of the fall, reason has been uh, deflected from its proper orientation to the truth. And so it can't really grasp the truth in its fullness, and even some of the truth that it grasps at a natural level is distorted, and so on. Um, So I I know this is a typical view to have, the view that you put up there, but I think it's a a distortion of... uh, of the so-called medieval um, as if yeah. somehow they didn't recognize uh, the the noetic influence of sin, right? And
0: order. Yeah. Well, good luck. Pro- good luck know, proving it's that. It's um, no, 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 no. We've got to stop this minute. But you, you won't be able to prove that from Thomas. Number one. Number two. This is not a typical view. It's the it's the study view of Muller, who's read. Uh, virtually everybody Th- Thomas of course affirmed noetic effects of sin because he was a Christian theologian what he didn't get right number one is Romans 1 he thought that it was talking about the light of reason and therefore Thomas said I can proceed he said this explicitly I can proceed to prove the existence of God on the basis of reason alone that is anything but reform so Muller's got that right and I think that, that those who have uh, rejected it have that right
1: it's not a question whether, it's, uh, whether Thomas has a reform view, it's a question whether Muller uh, and your own view, whether that's the representation of, of view. Right. And it seems to me that one could show from the text that we had before us that Thomas understands that reason, reason has been reflected because of sin, right
0: and that's and that's that's a standard Thomistic view and the reform view is uh the natural man cannot submit to the law of god the mind of man cannot submit to the law of god it's not deflected it's dead you're not just sick you don't grab a life preserver you're at the bottom of the ocean and you're rotten and that's where your reason is and that's not anything thomas came close to So, all right i think i have to finish because others are getting ready to come in thank you for your time